week's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corwin Heller. And Corwin and I went to the theaters this week to watch one of these two movies, so you know it's going to be a good episode. We are here to talk about the current Oscar nominees, Licorice Pizza and Tick Tick Dot 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 Boom. Uh, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? The 1970s or the 1990s? Oh, let's start in the 1970s because I have a lot more to say about that one. I'm actually surprised. Uh, all right. So, actually, for starters, Corwin. Yeah. Is this the most? I know it's the most recent. Well, before this, what was the last movie you'd seen in theaters? Um. Oh, um, wow. Um, I didn't expect to stump I, you. I, uh, it was I not know, the gotcha question I was anticipating. I know I saw a movie with Quinn and my parents. Um, Dune. I think I saw Dune in theaters. Oh, you know what? You did see Dune in theaters because you told me about it. Yeah. Before then, pre-pandemic, probably 1917. I thought you were trying to be funny for a second. I forgot that was also a movie. Yeah. It's uh, been yeah. a while. I missed it. Yeah, it, it felt good doing it again. It was nice being out in the theater. My fiance and I had a, had a dinner and a movie, and it felt so weirdly normal. It was cool. It's weird. It's weird going back to normal things that haven't been normal in forever. I know. So this was uh, this was nice to get out and about and doing this, although I don't want to make it the norm for this podcast because that becomes very expensive very fast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, we're starting off with Licorice Pizza, which was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, the film stars Alana Heim. Cooper Hoffman and Sean Penn, which I'm not sure I would quantify him as a top three, <laughs> like by screen time, but uh, he's definitely in the movie yeah. plenty. So. By any metric, really. Is... Sure. Uh, uh, yeah. I have, I don't have the estimated budget. Uh, 40 million is what I'm seeing. Uh, sure. And I see a cumulative worldwide gross of 26 million. So, and this is actually not a streaming movie. Usually we give the caveat about streaming movies, but the reason Cor and I had to go see it in theaters is because we had no ability to not, you know, to watch it from, from home in any capacity mm-hmm. if you catch my drift. So this really is, I guess, kind of the drawback to having a pandemic because usually not that Paul Thomas Anderson movies are like Marvel movies, but usually kind of art house ish movies have a bigger audience. But I also wouldn't be surprised if that largely comprised of at risk groups like the elderly. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting point where it's a, not a box office success, but I'm not sure that's necessarily its fault rather than the global crisis we're all currently living through. So pick your poison. I'll take it all. 
all down the pipe. I don't have a tagline for this movie, so go fuck yourself. Uh, it is currently nominated for three Oscars. This film is nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year for Sarah Murphy, Adam Somner, and Paul Thomas Anderson. It is nominated for Best Achievement in Directing for Paul Thomas Anderson and also Best Original Screenplay for Paul Thomas Anderson. This film is about the story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around, and going through the treacherous navigation of first love in the San Fernando Valley in 1973. This was my pick, so I will get us started. I have spent a decent amount of time contemplating this movie since having seen it in theaters a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And I have very mixed feelings on this. I think it was gorgeous. I think the cinematography was really lovely. I think the sound editing was also, which is something I don't usually pick up on unless it's tragically bad. I, I weirdly thought it was phenomenal. The subtle sound of, of you know, streetcars going by or the tapping of feet felt so warm and oh. almost like, you know, cozy in a certain type of way to the environment that I typically find those things to be distracting. I also thought the acting in this film was really good. I thought Alana Haim was great for her first movie, and I thought Cooper Hoffman was great for his first movie. Um, I also am a sucker for Tom Waits. Like, the second Tom Waits came on screen, I was like, yes, give me that weird, crunchy voice all day. I literally was so happy I got to see Tom Waits in this movie. I bought a record of his after seeing it because I just love Tom Waits. Mm. Um, but that's about he had a very I, fun character. He did. And he had such a uh, Tom Waits is such a good, like amiable, weird dude, which is exactly how I felt about him in this movie. It's like, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm comfortable that you're here, but you have such a presence that I want more of you. What are his big movies that he's been in, if anything? Tom Waits? I mean, I always think yeah. of him from, uh, like, Jim Jarmusch movies is where I feel like he'll get most of his... Because uh, he was in fucking... Uh, not Stranger Than Paradise. Um, God damn it. What's the Jarmusch movie? I can't fucking think of it. But he was in Seven Psychopaths. Uh, he was in really, yeah. Oh, down by law. That was all right. That's the Jarmusch movie I'm thinking of. Yeah, he was in the Battle of Buster Scruggs. Uh, yeah, he's been around. Okay, he has an Oscar nomination. What's your Oscar nomination for? Best original song for One from the Heart, not acting though. It's a shame, it's a damn shame. Yeah, but uh, hmm. wait, was he in Stranger? Now I don't know if he was in Stranger. Oh, he was in Coffee and Cigarettes. That's right, it's another Jim Jarmusch movie. Uh, it was in Bram Stoker's Dracula as Renfield, which is a, actually a good adaptation of the movie from Coppola. Well, good is a relative term. Um, it's late Coppola, but whatever. All right, now I'm just going to suck down to Tom Waits' rabbit hole. But anyway, for Licorice Pizza, story-wise, though, I really did not enjoy this, like, at all, in any way. Uh, I think that the premise of the movie is wildly flawed. 
And then the way that it's executed, I found to be honestly kind of annoying. Because uh, really what this film boils down to is this 15-year-old child, Gary Valentine, obsesses over in an extremely unhealthy way a woman a decade older than him, Alana Heim, uh, who plays the part of Alana, and clings to her in a very emotionally needy, very unhealthy, uh, and very inappropriate way, and then ends up getting her at the end like we should have felt good about that, which is literally statutory rape if they were to you know yeah. get together in an intimate way. Like the fact That's that me. the that the movie concludes with the feel good 15 year old in a relationship with an adult um, conclusion was insane to me. Like what film or what year did this film come out? This film came out this year. Uh, it was very rhetorical. Thank you, Josh, for answering. Like you would see this in a film from like 1960 and be like, oh, that couldn't get released today. And it got released today and is also nominated for several Oscars. And and it's the uh, writing just, ones I really, because the directing one I think is fully warranted. Like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson took two not exactly actor people. They are actor adjacent, certainly. Uh, and got really, I think, very good performances out of each of them. And in addition to the the technical aspects of this film, I think being very much so up to snuff, that's a that's a good job directing. That is straight up a good job directing. But oh my god, mm-hmm. this script! And I kept thinking at the end, like building up to the ending, like this has to end with Gary Valentine and Alana Heim having their own realizations of what they need, what is mm-hmm. right for them, and their emotional deficiencies that are are creating this apparent attraction to each other, whether that's Gary Valentine's lack of parental figures and he's clinging unhealthily to someone older than him or Alana Heim feeling like her life got away from her. And so she's attracting uh, is attracted to someone younger than her that feels like he has a world of possibilities that she never had. And instead the movie says, nah, fuck those perfectly good, interesting and legitimate plot points. Let's just have them basically fuck and like it'll be cool because that's really where it's heading after that kiss. Like there's something to be said about trying to find that spark you feel as like a 15, 16 year old, you know, going through and hitting puberty and finding an attraction to the opposite sex or fucking attraction to anyone. It doesn't matter. But finding an attraction to someone older than you and, and just seeing their maturity and like, Oh my God, like that's amazing. Like I want that. I want to be with them and whatever. And nobody ever acts on that because they're a decade older than you and they're an adult and it's illegal and you grow into and find love with people your own age. And that would have been a really cool way to, you know, to tap into this but I, I don't really want to say that this is, oh, what's the term for it? Like gratifying that 
feeling or impulse and like, oh, it, it, it happens here. So, you know, like we've all been there, you know, hey, it's like, no, like there's a reason why that's not the reality for 99.99% of people because it can't be. I just could never get over that. Well, no, and, and that's, that's a, a, a great point because it feels like the movie starts off with the idea of like, hey, remember when you were 15 and tried to fuck a 25-year-old? And it's like, no. No, I absolutely do not. <laughs> Especially not at 15. Like, no. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't even remember when we were crazy kids trying to, trying to fuck girls way older than you and being creepy as shit the whole time. And like, asking no. waitresses at restaurants for hand jobs. That was the wildest scene <laughs> that they just glossed over. There is a moment. Never in the bathroom brought it up. At a, Never. There was a moment in the bathroom where Alana Haim is talking to one of the waitresses at this offensive Japanese restaurant, which was played off for a joke that, man, was not funny, like just uncomfortable. And the waitress is like, oh, man, is Gary busting your balls for hand jobs? And Alana Haim was like, uh, I guess he asked and she's and the waitress is like, good. Now you can start doing it. And it's like, does that mean that this fellow adult has been jacking off a child for seemingly no reason other than he's so annoying. He keeps asking for it for such a long time that she is like, oh, thank God you can take over. I've been jerking this kid's wang since he was 12. What the fuck is that? That was bizarre. Oh, I don't think she actually was doing that. I, th- I assume she was doing it. Oh, I th- no. She just said, like, he he always asks. I didn't think she actually fucking would. No, because she, she says, uh, great, you can take over that now. Yeah, like being and the I, one to ask. I assumed. I, okay. Because she comes back for in my so own, angry. For my own, well, she was just kind of angry 99% of this movie. I... Regardless, I, I, I am choosing enough, to though, accept that that didn't happen for my own sake. Funny enough, though, I, I did turn to Kel at one point and said, you know, this movie is mostly just Alana Haim walking around. <laughs> like, this movie is 90... Alana yeah. Haim is, is mobile in a tracking shot 90% of this movie. And they just are running. So time. much running! Just casually oh my God. running everywhere. And just, that's what it... Go ahead. I don't know about you or I, but I do know about I. I don't know about you, but I try to run as little as possible. And even times where I probably should be running, I'm like, eh, I'll be okay if I walk. I fine. was I was once five minutes away from my gate closing at an airport. Five minutes and they were going to close, not boarding in five. The gate was going to close in five minutes. And I started running and said, honestly, fuck this. If the plane leaves, it leaves. And started walking. (laughs) (laughs) Also, fuck you, Denver International Airport. The shittiest airport I've ever been in in my life. Newark makes you guys look. Newark, you make Newark look pristine and great. Fuck you. Anyway. Yeah, because and that's the other thing is that the movie falls on these like romantic, like like romance movie tropes, like the whole running into each other's arms kind of thing. And there's one of them that it plays off for a laugh when they both collapse in front of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, movie theater or whatever. And, and, but it does that with a lot of its shots where it's like, here's a trope 
is meant to trick you into thinking you're rooting for this, which is why I kept assuming they were going to go in a different direction and have it again be a story where they realize that they're not right for each other romantically because of their own faults and flaws. And then they just get to anyway. So the plot of this movie outside of the, the romance bit is also very difficult to kind of wrap your head around when you consider the moving parts. Cause the idea is uh, Cooper Hoffman is a child actor, which gets brought up in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then never again, uh, who gets fascinated with Alana Heim, brings her across the country to one of his acting gigs, which he again, then returns back to California from to never see to act again, uh, who then engages in a series of business ventures, which he enlists, enlists the help of his fellow 15 year old friends who are wildly underdeveloped as characters. Uh, mm-hmm. And, Alana Heim, they essentially are like they're do their props. Uh, every time they showed up in a scene, she was like, she said the name of one of them off like while they were off screen. She's like, Why don't you go hang out with what's his face? And I forgot that was a character who had a name. Gary um, is the brother. That's the only information I was able to who I thought was going to be such a bigger part of this movie. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he, um, they, they go through a series of business ventures that uh, again is just, uh, that's kind of it. Like he starts off by selling water beds and then moves that into um, water bed installation and then turns that into a pinball arcade slash water bed store. This honestly felt like an episodic TV series that they just all smushed together and didn't really do anything to edit around the fact that it was just a bunch of episodes. Like a bunch of stuff happens and there's incidents that happen, but they're barely at all connected to each other. And I mean, the narrative of this film is all over the place. Oh, it's generally walking out of theaters. Like, I don't really know what the story was and, and that's kind of the thing of it that happens is like so my sister saw it like the day before i did so i was talking to her and she was like i didn't follow the story and i was like all right so i'm gonna really focus in on that and the thing about it is you can definitely follow the series of events like it's not hard to wrap your mind around the idea that someone is now running a waterbed store but what's hard to wrap your mind around is how did we get to this spot like i see him putting up waterbeds in a store but like where did you get the capital from how fast did you move into here you're 15 who signed this lease like what happened to the school that you were going to what yeah the school is literally only in the shot where he meets alana heim and then they just move on from that entirely uh i mean the fact that your mother runs a pr firm i thought was going to be more involved than it was it really wasn't it was also confusing as to who was helping who out in their professional capacity? Because when uh, Cooper Hoffman said, I employ my mother, I again thought that would come into play. And then it really doesn't. If anything, his mother helps him out when he's trying to do the uh, waterbed thing, because he takes advantage of her connections by putting help, trying to put those waterbed flyer things in that Japanese restaurant which doesn't pan out, but still, that's his mother's connection. It's not his. 
so uh, really like Corwin said, the, the narrative of this film, like it is everywhere. It is every, there is a constant also stream. Nowhere. Yeah. It's a constant stream of things being brought up that just go away. Mm-hmm. Why, why the big deluge to, to, to John Peters's house? I, I, I looked up who John Peters was. In the- oh, you don't know John Peters? No. All right. So first off, if you do not know who John Peters is and you're listening to this, go on YouTube and look up Kevin Smith talking about John Peters because it is an Oof. amazing story that he tells. <laughs> At home, I'm going to sit here and look it up. It's like a 20 minute video. Like it's going to take time. Um, but it's absolutely worth it. not that important because um, he is a wild figure in Hollywood history, but he's also a producer. Like he, he produced uh, one of the Superman movies, which is why Kevin Smith was, um, he was talking to Kevin Smith and it ended up with him producing like wild, wild West instead, which was a colossal flop, a very famous flop at the time with Will Smith, a really wild and crazy dude, um, which is like fun for what they needed him to be in this movie where Bradley Cooper showed up, but it's just like, why is, and then same thing with, with the Sean Penn scene, the, the Sean Penn and Tom Waits scene where Sean Penn is doing what I understand to be a very old Hollywood thing to do, which is just kind of speak in weird quotes from your old movies. But I didn't get the point of it other than you're supposed to be jealous. You're supposed to understand that there is jealousy forming on behalf of um, Cooper Hoffman, but they they do that in such an extravagant way that you think surely there must be more that this means. And then there just isn't like that. That comes about because Alana Haim goes to a casting agent's office or a manager's office, whatever to start acting gets an acting gig with a famous actor. And then just, it never comes up again. Oh yeah. She never does the acting. It's a. Uh, I don't get it. I don't get. I don't get the best writing and best best picture. I I can I can stand by the best directing, Oscar. I can make sense of that one. I do not understand the others. I this this does not do anything for me. I'm gonna be honest. The the sound, like you said, I absolutely didn't notice that when I was in theater. I the visual, you know, the directing aspect of it, like. I, I didn't even think that stood out to me much at all either. I didn't enjoy this movie. I thought there were at times funny bits and there were times when I laughed. Like when, uh, oh, I forget the actor's name, but the, the Japanese restaurant owner, uh, <laughs> despite how fucking tragic that entire stream of information and, and joke line was, I fucking chortled in the theater and he said, oh, I don't speak Japanese. Yeah, I, I knew that joke was coming, though. <laughs> uh, I, I, there were jokes that I laughed at. That's about as much of a, a positive as I can really say. We left the theater and Quinn said it was the worst movie she ever saw in theaters. Uh, I couldn't really argue much against it. Like, I, it wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen in theaters. And we're close. I saw, you know, The Return of Skywalker. But I just, 
it wasn't a good movie. No, it it really isn't. It's a shame that it isn't because I do again think that this movie has really good aspects to it. I liked seeing for for fans of the band Heim. You know this already, but the the band Heim is a group of sisters, and the the sisters played Alana's sisters in the like the the family that's having dinner is Alana Heim's real family. Um, that's her mother, both her sisters, and her dad. And I thought their chemistry on screen was great. I thought it was really interesting. I, I well, uh, you know, family. I'm not not that I needed, yeah, because it's a real family. Not that like I needed necessarily more of them, but I enjoyed watching them on screen. It was a cool moment for fans of the band. Um, also, something I didn't know, which is honestly makes this a little bit creepier. So I hope you're you braced yourself. Uh, so Paul Thomas Anderson has directed some of Heim's videos, and that's because Paul Thomas Anderson knows the Heim family because he was he had. Um, Donna Heim, their mother, as his art teacher when he was in uh, like middle school, which is who this movie is based on. Like the two of them? Yes. He cast his middle school crush's daughter to play her mother and act out his fantasy of her mother. You started off after saying this is going to get make it a whole lot, you know, creepier. Um, and you started talking. I was like, Josh, this isn't really all that creepy. Like, yeah, okay, he knows the family, but it's not like there was anything crazy that happened in this movie to like be upset by. Oh no, that's fucked up. That's really fucked. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's let's see what else I can add to the creepy factor here. Oh, don't, so don't. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson addressed uh, John, uh, asked, talked to John Peters about the fact that he would be depicted in this film, asked him if it was okay. John Peters apparently said that he wouldn't yell, have yelled at Gary like his character does in the movie. But then after he said that, he did start hitting on Alana in real life. And so they wrote that into the movie because John Peters is exactly who they described in this movie. Um, I believe it. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Bradley Cooper, who he was there. the highlight of the film. My highlight will always be Tom Waits, but I understand. It, honestly, like just having Bradley Cooper just go in and just be like, hey, get fucking weird with it. Go crazy. Just fuck this movie. Hey, go have fun. Was great. It was just him going insane, and that's all we need in life, you know. Uh, a lot of Heim actually drove the truck for all of that. No stunt doubles, even, even backwards. All, all of Alana. Whenever Alana is on screen driving, she is actually doing the driving. Okay, I can believe that. I cannot believe that she was going sixty miles an hour backwards down that mountain road. Yeah, Which also, okay. like, look, I don't know much about outside of L.A. driving, but that seemed like a pretty well-populated area. No one was on the street. I guess the premise of nobody no has gas to go anywhere is sure. Yeah, but no, okay. I see. I don't I don't even buy that because the gas stations are packed with cars. Yeah, but those cars Which, can't go anywhere. No, but it means that, that no they gas. it means that the cars had to drive to get there. Yeah, but all the cars driving got stuck. 
I won't. I'm not gonna get stuck on this point because honestly, it no th- that point really really fucked me up because I'm like, oh god, I you, you whatever it, it you know it doesn't matter, but it did annoy me in the theaters. Um, sure. I I guess uh, we'll just move into ratings and reviews. I really don't know what else I'm supposed to say about this unless you had up the notes. Yeah. This. Um. No, I did not take notes in the theater. I'm not that kind of guy. Uh, not that I've taken fucking notes for the past like five films we've watched, um, if not significantly more. Um, Honestly, I could keep talking about this for another yeah. hour, just about all the weird shit in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's not worth the time. Uh, all right, so start ratings and reviews. This is my movie. I'll get started. Uh, uh, I uh, I'll, I'll I feel like I'm being generous. I'll give it a two, and that's I feel rather generous i'll give it there's no reason to watch this again for for me uh i'm not even really gonna recommend it strongly again if you're an oscars completionist go for it like that's what i that's what the reason we watched it Uh, honestly i was excited for it like i'll I'll, I'll say that too like i was genuinely looking forward to it and i'm disappointed i did not enjoy it uh but the premise of this movie is really quite gross and then it just got no better like you, they will introduce to you the premise of the movie within the first five minutes of the movie, and it will be the outcome. Like it is, they do not deviate from it, and it is, it is creepy, the whole way through. It is really creepy. So, uh, yeah, no, it's not, it's not very good. Yeah, I'll give it a two and a half because that's what I told Quinn when we left the theater. Um, and it probably isn't a two and a half. It's probably a two, probably one and a half. Who cares? Um, but uh, I'm with you. All right. Well, then let's get into uh, the, 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 the deep, weird stages of off-Broadway productions and talk about Tick, Tick, Boom, which was directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, written by Stephen Levinson and John Larson, based on the musical that he created. Uh, this film stars Andrew Garfield, Alexandra Ship, and Robin the Jesus. This film, do we have a budget? Oh boy! Uh, no, I have no budget information and a claimed box office around a hundred k. This is a Netflix release. We'll never get any of this information, so don't even try. It doesn't. Yeah, whatever. Uh, The tagline, because we didn't have a tagline for the last film, but we have a tagline for this one. How much time do we have to do something great? I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, This film is nominated for two Oscars. It is nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Andrew Garfield. And it's nominated for Best Achievement in Film Editing for Myron Kirstein and Andrew Weisblum. Uh, this was Corwin's pick. So, Corwin, you can get us started. Oh, sorry. Uh, the film is about, I missed that part. The film is about, on the cusp of his 30th birthday, a promising young theater composer navigates love, friendship, and the pressures of life as an artist in New York City. Now, Corwin, tell me what you thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I just can't stand musicals i just can't get through them um i thought the songs were pretty catchy uh i liked the songs i did not care for any of the story that connected the songs and i i i I liked andrew garfield i liked his acting 
uh, I thought he did an excellent job. Uh, outside of that and the songs, I really don't have much to say because I genuinely just struggle to stay focused. I'm sorry. You have to. You have got to do better, my friend. <laughs> I just I can't do music. Music I cannot distract you this can't. much. I just I can't do it. I've tried so many times. It just I I don't know why people singing instead of talking is just the end all be all. I just I'm mentally weak. That is widely known, but I'm just uh, it's a brick wall that I just have yet to break through. You you have got to work on yourself in this respect, my 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 friend. I mean, it is a, such a small barrier to. To have to get get over. Hey, at least it's not subtitles. Subtitles, I would say, is harder than I than. Know. It's just music. And this, I thought, was a very I I really enjoyed this movie, uh, and I think part of it is the way that they presented a lot of the musical numbers as being excerpts from the play Tick Tick Boom. So basically, what this is, people who are familiar with musicals, I'm sure already know who John Larson is. For those of us who do not, John Larson was the man who wrote Rent, which went on to be a massive success. Uh, like, I remember singing um, Seasons of Love in, like, sixth grade choir, you know? Um, the the movie was uh, not, like, great, but it was uh, certainly a success uh, financially. Actually, now I should check that, because I said that very confidently, but now I'm not sure. Um, and, but he also, apparently had two other plays that were not nearly as hot shit. And what this film does is it tells the story of the, the first play that he wrote that he spent a significant amount of, of time uh, making, which was called, I'm trying to get it right. Uh, it was, Superbia. huh? Superbia, Superbia. right? Yeah, yeah. Superbia. And they tell the story of him writing it by interspersing with excerpts. From the second play he wrote which was called Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, which largely was about writing the first one and then ends essentially with script on screen informing the viewers that, hey, this guy also eventually went on to write Rent, which we're all sure you're much more familiar with. And I figure this would be about the story of Rent because I didn't know Tick, Tick, Boom was a play and was, was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't about Rent because it really informed a lot more on who John Larson was and his personal relationships with other people that ended up informing a lot on how rent came to be uh, eventually, right. you know, his friends around him having AIDS and, and him working and, and struggling to get by on, on, on his own, in addition to seeing a lot of his friends go through similar things. And I thought Andrew Garfield did a phenomenal job with it. And I give him a lot of shit because I think he's the corniest motherfucker to ever walk the face of the earth. But Lynn and Miranda, I think they did a great job directing this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it to be an excellent presentation for both a biopic and a musical. Uh, I will say the comment you made about making the musical numbers feel as if they are just, you know, hey, we're rehearsing the play or they're coming straight from the play. It definitely helps with my ability to digest it and get through it. And neither of those 
terms that feel like are uh, positive in tone, but it, it genuinely was, you know, a better experience watching. Um, yeah, it's just, again, there's, there's just a little, little clip, cliff there, a little lip that I just am incapable of overcoming. And I, I really love the concept of this story, which is essentially that John Larson is in a hurry to be, to live up to his potential. And it's, it's, it really resonates for, for a few reasons. One, it's a very interesting conversation on the passage of time, because if you think about it, it doesn't really matter in a certain context, a certain uh, headspace. If you become, if you write the perfect play at age 22 versus 32, 42, 52, you know what I mean? Like um, there's a, there's a quote from uh, the author of catch 22, John Heller, I believe you two share a last name. I think that's his yeah. f- first name. Anyway, John, I um, don't think it's John. No fucking it's something Heller. I know you guys have the same well, catch 22, Joseph, Joseph. Yeah. Heller. And the, the quote was essentially, are you, it was something to the effect, he was asked something to the effect of, um, how does it make you feel knowing you've never written a book as good as Catch-22 again? And his answer was essentially something to the effect of, pretty good, because most people never write anything as good as Catch-22 in the first place. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the basic idea. Like, you you either have it within you to, to, to create something great whenever you create it, and regardless of if you can ever replicate it, or you do not. But because there's this pressure on Jonathan Larson because of all the attention that had been foisted upon him in his youth about how he had been considered great at such a young age and felt as though he had failed to live up to that, especially in competition with some people he aspired to view his peers like Stephen Sondheim, who recently left us. Um, He felt as though he was not doing that by failing in, in, in this perceived way to finish this project, to, to receive notoriety prior to turning 30. And I mean, that's an interesting point. You know, we talk about this in our sports podcast all the time about players who, you know, get drafted in, you know, MLB or whatever, and they're like 22 and, you know, they have a rough rookie season or or even two seasons and you go, yeah, but like they're 24, how hard are you going to be on a 24 year old? But then all of a sudden, that 24-year-old, maybe they're 26, 27, and they still haven't really panned out. And it's like, all right, well, that's done. And granted, that's sports where your shelf life is certainly shorter than in theater. But still, there is there is a pressure to early perceived greatness in uh, high monetary, high uh, attention-getting mediums like sports and entertainment. So it, it's, it's an interesting view from this perspective, from this angle on it. Yeah, I, I never really made the connection to sports when uh, I was watching this, but I do really like that where it doesn't matter if you write the perfect play when you're 35. When you're 25, you're still trying to write it and you can't know that you're going to in 10 years. All you know is that all the work and time and effort you've put in so far hasn't led to something successful. And it's that creeping doubt that where it's like, am I... I know I'm capable of doing it myself, but am I actually capable of, of getting it out there? 
Yeah. And the getting out there part is ultimately what, uh, what fucks Larson at the end of the movie and that he doesn't receive backing to put it on because it would be a very expensive production, um, which is a very interesting part of the dynamics of theater. Funny enough, similar thing happened to um, Mel Brooks when he was trying to make the producers. He originally conceived of it as a play, but he got told very early on, there's too many sets. It will cost a fortune. You'll never get it backed. And that's when he made it into a movie and then, you know, won an Oscar. And then funny enough, it got made into a play 30 years later and still to this day holds the record for most Tony Awards won by a single play. Twelve. Also got made into a second movie. With the performers from the much acclaimed play. But yeah, it's um getting some of those dynamics is also, you know, fun. I, I enjoy those behind the scenes type type things. It, also having it end with kind of a downer in that the play doesn't get put on. I always do slightly enjoy sometimes happy endings can feel a little bit forced. This ends up having a kind of mixed ending because it's sad that he didn't get that play put on, but then it's happy because he got other plays put on, but then sad because he died, uh, mm. which is unfortunate. The, the irony of dying at 35 right before you make it big. Uh, very reminiscent of like Jim Croce, but uh, well, yeah, I I also you know, Jim. huh? Uh, I tried to make a, a quote about a man named Jim, but uh, well, you don't mess around with Jim. Yeah, you know that that would have been a good one. Yeah, it would have been. It was just a song he wrote. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you you don't mess around with Jim, but anyway. Yep, yep, yep. yep. It's also you know there is the additional pressure of. The fact that he's he's broke, he's living in what is a considered a shitty apartment. He is working as a waiter uh, and he has ostensibly no money to do anything. And it's impossible for him to earn more money because that would require him to get a better job, which would take up more of his time, which he is spending trying to write a play. So it's funny enough. We just mentioned Joseph Heller. This is also a little bit of a catch 22 where you can stay broke no. and keep writing your play and make progress, but never have any money. Or you can work a better job, make more money, but then not have any time to write your play. So, uh, classic Joseph Heller. Classic Joey H. There are no Joseph Hellers in my family. At least, you know. You have the opportunity to make one, buddy. No, nah, no thanks. To make your own Joseph Heller. I'm quite all right here. One day. But yeah, I mean, I it it it's nice to see, or it's interesting to see a, a creative pressure kind of movie that isn't necessarily the linear stories that we're used to, where it's like, I I gotta win the battle of the bands uh so that I can get noticed by a record label or I, I gotta get into art school so that I can fulfill my dream of being a painter. Cause I'm listless and empty without it. Um, or, you know, I, 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 I gotta become an actor so I can be rich. And it's like, this movie has like little ideas of all those things, but it, it's because it is a, a real guy and presents his, his issues very you know, real, very, you know, mm-hmm. grounded way. Um, 
I felt as though it, it ended up resonating a lot more than some of the more heightened characters we've seen in, in other types of movies like this, where the stakes are made to feel bigger, but because they're almost less tangible, they, they, they are not as, as readily, readily grasped. Right. Like, it's not like, oh, I need to do this to stick it to my stepdad and show him that I can do it as a performer. Right. No, I need to do this so I don't die. Uh, so right and it's not as abstract as just I need to do this because I've spent my whole life doing it I don't know what else to do it's like yeah that that is true for this man but there's also the real idea of like not only have I been doing it my entire life people have been telling me I'm good at it my entire life and I will be a massive disappointment to everyone who's ever supported me if I don't succeed Whereas usually with those I've been doing in my whole life movies, it's been, I've been doing it my whole life and I don't want to stop. Not so much. I've been doing it my whole life and people have financially supported me for decades and I will be fucking them if I don't live up to who, to who I'm trying to be. That is way more interesting. Yeah. But he sings during it. So not that interesting. Fuck you. When his, yo, shout outs uh, to to uh, supporting actor fucking uh, Robin DeJesus. I'm, I'm fucking up his name. Hold on. Uh, oh, no. no, that was right. Robin DeJesus. Robin DeJesus, um, <laughs> who was great in this. And when he said he had AIDS and that uh, Jonathan Larson needs to like do better because his concept of how much time he has left and Robin's time of how a concept of how much time he has left are so drastically different in such a wide margin of scale. That shit was so sad. Mm. And it was great to also see that realization eventually be realized in rent. Yeah. I could not tell you the last time I saw rent. But we must I have, have seen rent. It, but it's been a while. Oh yeah, rent is due at the first. 525,600 minutes. Do the whole song. Love that fucking song. How many minutes you've worked here? Uh, I'm also a sucker for, for a good solo at the piano, busting out a song, you know, type of movie. Like, uh, uh, fucking, there was a Paul Dano movie where he played uh, Brian What's His Face from the Beach Boys where he did that like a couple times and but every time he did it I was like oh fuck yeah straight in my goddamn veins I love it so that movie this movie had some of that which was which was great for my psyche love that shit well I mean if it's good for Josh's psyche it's good for all of us and I got you know it, it can also the other issue I think a lot of people have, and I'm sure this is felt by you somewhat, is that a lot of theater-based films, m- movies about theater, or even just musical theater pieces, or musicals in general, can have a big theater kid touch to it. Like, mm-hmm. I think that that was a lot of people's issue with La La Land. Justifiably so. Like, La La Land feels like, felt like a movie that was made by a theater kid. Mm-hmm. And that can be very annoying. What the fuck was that? The door alarm. Jesus Christ. That sounded like someone screaming. 
Yeah, it was really loud. Hopefully, uh, Quinn heard it. So, so we're gonna... Well, anyway. She did. She did. This movie luckily does not feel like it has that touch for me. This felt a lot more involved in its environment, which was 90s New York when it wasn't like the greatest. Um, Because I think also having things be very glitzed and glamorized can maybe make it more fun in certain ways by keeping a lighthearted touch on things, but also helps detract from how serious, again, the, the consequences or the stakes are for those involved, you know, it's tough to depict somebody as having to, you know, undergoing the harrowing nature of poverty in Manhattan in the nineties. If everything is very pretty and everything is very light, it's not a situation that should be light, but it sometimes feels like a lot of musical theater pieces can default to making things a little bit light and breezy because it's more fun to sing songs in major keys than it is minor keys or something along those lines. So this film also, I think, did a really good job of, you know, capturing a little bit more grit and reality than uh, pomp and fluff. What's the difference between major and minor keys? Uh, major keys are happy and minor keys are sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you got you got anything else for this one or do you want to pack this one in too? I really don't. Let's pack it in. All right, buddy. Final rating and review. Lay it on me. Um, good music, good acting, fun movie for other people. Uh, I'll give it a three. All right. Uh, I, I I'm giving this I'm giving this a solid four. I don't know why I'm not going higher. It's a gut feeling on this one. This was really good. I would actively recommend this movie to people. I'm surprised you didn't like it because I even said I think this might be one that you would like. And I'm usually getting a pretty more uh, much more reserved with those ones. Um, but because I I would genuinely think this would be a, a much more accessible musical than men, than most others. So I, I would know, give this a solid four. I'll, I'll give it another shot. How about that? I feel like <laughs> yeah. it's deserving of another shot. I've talked him into it, folks. Hell yeah. Another success. All right. We're keeping it moving. Uh, we have more Oscar nominations Oscar Dom movies whatever to get through so Corwin what are you going with this week Uh, what did I tell you earlier (laughs) Corwin is going with Nightmare Alley (laughs) yeah all right Uh, which you can find streaming on an HBO Max I am going to go with the movie Spencer which you can find streaming on Hulu Uh, so there are three Oscar nominations on the table, at least anyway, we only keep track of a certain number for our own purposes, but at least three nominations on the table for these two movies combined. So we'll have uh, more stuff to talk about with them outside of just their quality as we get farther and farther into the total, um, all the pictures that are nominated for various Oscars this year. Uh, Corwin, anything else before we wrap up all together? No, let's do it. All right, well, uh, if you want to follow the show, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.